beloved member, let us unite in the true method of spiritual preparation for cosmic attunement during this period of work and worship here in your holy sanctum. This is your holy of holies, and here is where the consciousness of God and the great masters dwell with you when you petition for such divine blessings. Now that you are about to begin a sacred period of study and unfoldment, let us invoke the presence of God and the heavenly hosts. God of our hearts, creator of all living beings everywhere, and father of all humankind, we beseech thy presence here and now. Will you come with me for a few minutes into the mental, spiritual world and dwell in the cathedral of the soul? second installment of the secret history of Massachusetts. My name's Clonnie Gosh. We've got so much ground to cover that I'm not going to dither and waste time with some elaborate intro. Instead, let's leap straight into it. Historical Materia Ultima is the name of this miniseries within this series of episodes. It's a play off of Marx's historical materialism and the alchemical concept of materia ultima, the ultimate form of matter, which the alchemist aims to attain. Here's the reason for the above pun. In this episode, we will attempt to map the Rosicrucian and alchemical motivations behind the English colonization of New England, as well as the significant influence Rosicrucianism exerted over the colonial elite. We will attempt to demonstrate the colonial project's origins in the thought of two of the most famous occultists of the Elizabethan age, both of them Rosicrucians. 
and how the attempts at colonizing the quote-unquote New World were a part of a larger eschatological scheme for Protestant world domination and reformation. Connecting this scheme, which aimed to create the conditions conducive to the second coming of Christ, to contemporaneous millenarian and pansophist ideas. Finally, we will demonstrate how these various strains of esoteric and Protestant thought influenced the ruling elite in New England, some of whom were decisive in the emergence of the slavery economy in North America and the Salem witchcraft trials. You'll remember from the previous episode that we just concluded the first part of our psychogeographic sketch of downtown Boston, which took us to a handful of sus sites with secret societal and or dirty capitalist connections. We'll be returning to our psychogeography in this set of episodes, as we examine the occulted history of colonial America, as expressed by the history of the King's Chapel and King's Chapel Burying Ground, and especially New England ruling elites' involvement in the creation of the slavery trade. But this multi-part suite of episodes will also take us further afield. As far as the Protestant Palatinate of the 17th century, otherwise known as the Germany of the present day, and even Constantinople. We will zero in on a transatlantic alchemical brotherhood that went by many names, almost like a Russian nesting doll of formal and informal secret societies. And in almost every case, we'll see how these alchemical adepts stand Rosicrucianism. We will show how the vast majority of the members of these various societies were generally aristocratic or a part of the newly emerging mercantile elite. We'll pay special heed to the Rosicrucian alchemists of New England tracing their travels to and fro from the new world to the old and back again. We will examine how these powerful occultists were influenced by a swelling tide of pansific, millenarian, and utopian texts and ideas that were part of the larger Protestant Reformation movement a movement which aimed to defeat the Pope and the Catholic League, bring about worldwide general reformation by establishing a new world order, and finally trigger the millennium, the golden age believed to precede the second coming of Christ. Prior to launching into an exploration of the occultist, spy, and father of Rosicrucianism, John Dee, let's prime ourselves by briefly discussing a few of the philosophical and theological ideas of the elite Protestant zeitgeist of the 17th century. 
some of this stuff may be kind of obscure for the average listener. And it certainly was for me before I read a bunch of books about this shit. So hopefully this will make the more detailed and nuanced mapping of these ideas and their influence on English society and colonial government easier and more fruitful. Let's start with a short explanation of pansophism. Pansophism is a school of thought derived from the Latin word pansophia, meaning universal knowledge, essentially. Pansophism is most closely associated with the Protestant Czech philosopher and pedagogist Jan Amos Komensky, who would later Latinize his name to John Amos Comenius. Comenius was born in Moravia in 1592 to members of the Protestant sect called the Bohemian Brethren. His parents died when he was only ten. For the next four years, Jan was unhappily raised by his aunt. After enrolling in secondary school, he was encouraged by his headmaster to join the ministry. In short, this would eventually lead to Comenius becoming the educational reformer he would ultimately be known as. Comenius studied at the University of Heidelberg in Germany, where he would be indoctrinated into millenarian thought and introduced to the works of Francis Bacon, another father of Rosicrucianism. Comenius fled to Poland in 1618 at the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War. He eventually emigrated to England, where he would join the Hartlib's Circle, a group of Protestant natural philosophers and alchemists that we will be coming back to time and again in these episodes. He moved to England because of Emperor Ferdinand II's determination to re-Catholicize Bohemia. Although Comenius didn't coin the phrase, pansophism is largely regarded as his thing. The essence of it is this. Riffing off of texts such as Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, Comenius aimed to devise a pedagogical methodology whereby the prelapsarian universal knowledge that mankind possessed before the biblical fall could be attained. He wanted to see scholars set aside their sectarian differences and come together to piece universal knowledge together, eventually leading to the millennium quoting from the Encyclopedia Britannica. To this end, he wrote Janua Linguarum Reserata, a textbook that described useful facts about the world in both Latin and Czech, side by side. Thus, the pupils could compare the two languages and identify words with things. Translated into German, the Yanua soon became famous throughout Europe and was subsequently translated into a number of European and Asian languages. 
Comenius wrote that he was, quote, encouraged beyond expectation, end quote, by the book's reception. With the liberation of Bohemia less certain than before, Comenius turned to an even more ambitious project, the reform of human society through education. Others in Europe shared his vision, among them a German merchant living in London, Samuel Hartlib, who invited Comenius to England to establish a college of pansific learning. With approval from the brethren, Comenius went to London in 1641, reporting back that he had been, quote, fitted out with new clothes, befitting an English divine. He met a number of influential men, engaged in much discussion, and wrote essays of which the most notable was The Way of Light, which set out his program. Parliament went so far as to consider setting up a college for, quote, a number of men from all nations, end quote. This prospect was shattered by the outbreak of the English Civil War, however, and Comenius was obliged to leave the country in 1642. He had been invited to France by Cardinal Richelieu and the American John Winthrop Jr., who was in Europe looking for an educator-theologian to become president of Harvard College, may have met Comenius. Instead, Comenius accepted an offer from the government of Sweden to help reform its schools by writing a series of textbooks modeled on his Janua. I think that's enough on Comenius and pansophism for this moment. How about the millennium? and millenarianism, though. Let's quickly define these ideas. One of the reasons why these episodes are going to be so much fun for y'all is that these millenarian sects we'll be examining were like the prototypes of what has become a quintessentially American phenomenon. We all know it, the Christian doomsday cult, camped out on a hill scouring the stars for signs of the impending apocalypse. At the dawn of English colonialism, the notion that the end times were drawing near were pretty much mainstream, as we'll see. Here's the wrinkle, though. The millennium refers to biblical interpretations of the book of Revelation that attests that either prior to or subsequent to the second coming of Christ, there will be a golden age on earth that will last for 1,000 years. Now, millennialism slash millenarianism slash kiliasm doesn't exclusively refer to this Christian eschatology. The phrase can be used in reference to notions of an eschatological golden age held by other faiths as well. But throughout these episodes, if you hear the phrase millenarianism or millenarian, we're referring to the Christian variety. The root term, millennium, 
refers to a 1st century Eastern Mediterranean text, the Apocalypse of John, or Book of Revelation, itself a rich source of disputes about the end. John of Patmos here describes in highly figured language a penultimate battle between forces of good and evil, succeeded by a thousand-year reign of saintly martyrs with Jesus, and then the defeat of Satan. The last judgment, a new heaven, and a new earth. This interim, earthly reign is literally the millennium, from Latin, mille, thousand, and Greek, kil. Whence, kiliasm, sometimes applied pejoratively to belief in an indulgent, carnal millennium, or kiliad. Not all millenarians expect an interim paradise before an ultimate heavenly assumption. Not all anticipate precisely 1,000 years of peace. Not all stipulate a messianic presence or a saintly elite. Like John, however, they have constant recourse to images, for millenarians are essentially metaphorical thinkers. I think most people will have enough context to follow the discussions of alchemy already, which aren't theoretical or super heavy on the history of alchemy's influence on laboratory chemistry. But here's a 30-second long rundown of a few terms that might be unfamiliar. By alchemy, we're generally referring to an esoteric practice that is most frequently associated with the transmutation of metals into gold. This is what everyone thinks of when they think of alchemy. But alchemy is, at least according to the alchemists who practiced it, as much or more so about the spiritual transformation of man into his higher self than it is about actually producing gold from other metals. We'll explore this duality in detail throughout these episodes and consider how much we actually feel this is the case. A few phrases. Chrysopoeia, a Greek word that literally means gold-making, that also refers to the transmutation of base metals into gold. Philosopher's stone, a possibly mythical substance that alchemists used to affect chrysopoeia and transform metals like lead or mercury into gold. Alkahest, a universal solvent that is supposed to be able to dissolve any mineral. Panacea, a cure-all, basically, which can sometimes be associated with the alkahest. Paracelsus, ascribed liver-fortifying properties to the alkahest. The panacea might be used interchangeably with the elixir of life, a potion, mineral, or substance 
believed to be able to prolong life indefinitely. Okay, so now that we've established some of these definitions, we can now move forward with exploring how these ideas fed into the thinking of the people who initiated the colonization of America. Behind these venerable walls is situated the Swiss Pharmaceutical Society. For centuries, it has been a gathering place for learned men. Here was practiced alchemy, the father of chemistry. Alchemy came to Europe from the Orient during the Middle Ages. The implements the alchemists invented by the basic tools of chemists today. To the less enlightened, the alchemist was only interested in transmuting base metals, such as lead or iron, into gold. The renowned physician, alchemist, and Rosicrucian, Paracelsus, sought to reveal higher values of alchemy. Look, I have found it, the Philosopher's Stone, key to the transmutation of all base metals into precious gold. Still not be misled by the glamour of superficial appearances. The true Philosopher's Stone is not a material substance found in vapors or furnaces. The stone is not found. It is attained through work and worship, an essence of divinity which man must uncover within himself. As the soul pervades all of the body, the Philosopher's Stone reveals the essence of all things. When attained, it will transmute all a man's inferior elements. Man the laborer becomes man the creator. There's probably no better time than the present to introduce a quote from our favorite, New Agey, Central Intelligence Agency asset, Mr. Simon Necronomicon himself, ladies and gentlemen, the bane of Colonia Dignidad, the man who pays attention to all the small things, Tom DeLong's favorite ghostwriter, Mr. Peter Lavenda, Now, I'm going to alternate between reading straight from Sinister Forces 
and paraphrasing what Lavend is saying. So I hope it doesn't feel too topsy-turvy. Let's begin with a passage where Lavenda describes esoteric influences on Puritanism. Starting with a reference to the grand dame of comparative esotericism studies herself. Dame Frances Yates, the aforementioned historian of the University of London, the British Academy, the Warburg Institute, and the Royal Society of Literature, has written extensively on the Elizabethan period and the Renaissance. In her The Occult Philosophy in the Elizabethan Age, she makes an interesting, if daring, claim that the Puritan movement owed much to occult ideology current in England at the time with, quote, connections to Pico della Mirandola, Cornelius Agrippa, and other saints of the occultist canon, end quote. This form of occultism, known as Christian Kabbalah to historians, was an amalgamation of the Jewish Kabbalah with Muslim and Christian elements. In other words, an attempt to integrate the three religions by focusing on some basic mystical elements that they had in common. Among these was the belief in a sophisticated form of numerology, where letters have numeric equivalents, and in the rituals of invoking angelic forces. Eventually, this intellectual and spiritual movement came to be represented in such organizations as the Rosicrucians and the Masonic Societies, and to embrace various other occult disciplines such as alchemy and ceremonial magic. What may cause some New Englanders no small degree of astonishment if not, in some cases, amusement or even alarm, is the fact that no less a personage than Governor John Winthrop Jr. was a practicing alchemist during his administration, 1659 to 1676. It is noted that his library contained some Quote, 275 books on alchemy and the occult. End quote. He was well versed not only in these arcane matters, but also on the subject of the Rosicrucians, a putative secret society like the Freemasons and the Templars, whose existence was proclaimed at the very beginning of the 17th century probably by occult scholar Robert Flood. During Winthrop's tenure, in fact, many people were accused of witchcraft, and three were executed, Rebecca and Nathaniel Greensmith of Hartford and Mary Barnes of Farmington. End quote. Please note Lavenda's assertion that Governor John Winthrop Jr., was not only familiar 
with the Rosicrucian tradition, but also that he was a practicing alchemist himself, not quite as puritanical as one would have thought. Returning to the text, quote, Alchemy and the study of ceremonial magic, as well as the medical theories of Paracelsus, were considered gentlemanly pursuits in the 17th century. And indeed, we know that many esteemed scientists of the day were also practicing occultists of some type, as D. Michael Quinn notes in his excellent and exhaustive Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. Quote, Many of New England's practicing alchemists were Yale and Harvard graduates who continued their experiments into the 1820s. These alchemists served as Chief Justice of Massachusetts, President of the Massachusetts Medical Society, President of Yale College, and President of the Connecticut Medical Society. End quote. End double, end quote. Lavenda goes on to list a number of Enlightenment thinkers and scientists who were practicing occultists. Isaac Newton, Francis Bacon, who, as we'll see, had Rosicrucian connections himself and was even a pupil of Queen Elizabeth's archwizard, John Dee, who kick-started the British Empire by influencing the Queen to build up the Royal Navy and conspire to outdo the Spaniards in territorial expansion in the quote-unquote New World. And even Leibniz. Another quote from Sinister Forces. At the time of the Salem trials, Newton was in the throes of a kind of nervous breakdown. Hard at work, trying to decipher the Bible on the one hand, and involved with alchemical experiments on the other. As we shall show in a later chapter, Newton had a 20th century counterpart in Nobel Prize winning physicist Wolfgang Pauli. Yale University professor John Butler, in A Wash in a Sea of Faith, Christianizing the American People, gives a valuable synopsis of the religious, mystical, and occult milieu in 17th century America. Including the scientists, lawmakers, ministers, and other community leaders who were themselves involved in alchemy, ceremonial magic, Rosicrucianism, and other occult practices and movements. Large libraries of occult books, secret correspondence with like-minded occultists or members of secret societies, and avant-garde religious sentiments, particularly in a political context, and including such American founding fathers as Washington, Franklin, and Jefferson, defined the spiritual atmosphere of the intellectual class of the colonies. Divining rods, shoestones, and magic charms and talismans, 
as well as basic astrological lore, defined the approach of the lower and middle classes. Yet both groups shared a common belief in the actions of invisible forces in the world. Invisible, like uh, the sound of my radiator in the background that's ruining this recording. Forces which could be manipulated or cajoled into cooperation for mundane goals. Forces which could be summoned by magic, white and black, by priestly magicians in the shadow of the church, or by evil witches in the farms, villages, and back-alley lanes of the common people. This, then, was the environment in which the good villagers of Salem found themselves in 1692. Two hundred years after the discovery of America, by would-be crusader Christopher Columbus and his crew, many of whom had fought Muslims in Spain, the English colonists found themselves facing a pagan enemy in their midst, and alchemists, astrologers, and magicians hidden among their churchmen, their governors, and their doctors. All right, that's the end of that section of Lavenda's Sinister Forces. He next details how Cotton Mather insisted that the devil brought indigenous Americans to America, a horrendous opinion Mather held based on batshit biblical evidence. I also just want to point out here that we don't need to make excuses for Cotton Mather, as there were other English colonists who at least recognized the humanity and dignity of their indigenous neighbors, and even understood the immense value in their lifeways. Specifically, Thomas Morton, who we'll discuss in a bit more detail a little later. But getting back to Lavenda, Peter brings up another racist AF New Englander named H.P. Lovecraft, and argues that, quote, when Lovecraft wrote his fanciful stories of pagan cults in New England, he was touching a deeply buried memory of the very land in which he lived. Columbus and his Dutch, French, and English followers in North America brought the cross and the sword in a blaze of Neo-Templar fury to bear down upon the red man, to convert him or to kill him. The hatred of the Puritans for deviation of any kind would inevitably turn inward and begin killing them off from within. End quote. Obviously, those are Lefenda's words, not mine. So he then claims that the quote, instrument of that social suicide end quote, would be Tatuba, and that Tatuba was an Arawak woman whose ancestors came from Guyana. Connecting the Salem witchcraft trials to Columbus's bloody arrival 200 years earlier. A last few lines from Lavenda's Sinister Forces. 
Quote, the Arawak are famous for two exports, Tatuba and the ensuing Salem witchcraft case is one. Tobacco is another. It was once again Brother Columbus who, in 1492, saw the Arawak smoking tobacco in a kind of tube they called Tobago, and hence smoking, and the word tobacco, came to the white man from the Arawak. Tatuba's ancestors came from what is now Guyana, the South American country that would later become famous as the site of the Jonestown Massacre. She herself was purchased as a slave from Barbados. We'll be hearing a lot about Barbados in this episode, by the way, or in these next few episodes. This is me again interjecting. Let's just repeat that. She herself was purchased as a slave from Barbados by Samuel Paris, a minister and central figure in the Salem Witch Trials. Her story is covered in Elaine Breslau's Tatuba, Reluctant Witch of Salem, and her testimony is analyzed and deconstructed with a view to sorting the Arawak and Amerindian mythology and magic from the Puritan version. Professor Breslau mentions a native Guyanese belief in the evil stranger, the Kenayama, who causes evil things to happen in a village and who can take various forms, such as other humans, animals, etc. This is always a stranger, someone from outside the village, and Tatuba, in her testimony before the magistrates, began to point a finger at an evil outside influence behind the witchcraft covens in Salem. She claimed that the ringleader of the witches was a man in black who lived in Boston that she and the other Salem witches attended meetings in Boston in spirit form, and that they received their instructions to return to Salem and hurt the children living there. End quote. Thanks for scaring the shit out of us, Mr. Lavenda. Phew. There's a lot there. Well, the first thing I want to point out is the Paris family West Indies slavery connection. It's a significant relationship. In fact, Paris not only purchased Tatuba in Barbados, but he owned and ran a sugar plantation there until 1680, only leaving for New England after a hurricane destroyed much of his property. A form of divine comeuppance, perhaps? But as I was saying, this connection is significant for our investigation, as it manifests one of the primary leitmotifs of the episode, and provides us with a launch pad from which we can begin an inquiry into the relationship between the Salem trials and slavery. Although it's apparent and indisputable 
that the evils wrought by slavery and the slave trade have had a far-reaching impact on American history and global affairs for the past 500 years. Is it possible the introduction of slavery into New England in the 17th century and the amoral greed of the Massachusetts families who decided to deal in the trade at the time could have elicited a more immediate karmic correction from the universe. At the very least, the introduction of slavery and indentured servitude in colonial Massachusetts must have contributed to the fraught and paranoid group dynamics that preceded the trials. In the previous episode, we began gathering evidence of the influence that Western occultism and secret societies have had on the Boston Brahmin class, the Founding Fathers, and New England High Society. Now, as you can see, we're working an additional wrinkle into the mix, an argument that the earliest colonial expeditions that brought the English to the Americas in the first place were put in motion by occultists, and, if D is to be believed, even inspired by angels, depending on what your analysis is. You might also say that it was inspired by jinn or demons. Here's an excerpt from Jason Louv's John D. and the Empire of Angels that explicates his impact on Queen Elizabeth's foreign policy. Louv is referring to Drake's Bay, a bay near San Francisco. Quote, here in 1579, a privateer named Francis Drake landed after circumnavigating the tip of South America in a clandestine mission, proving that it could be done for the first time. He named the coast he had alighted upon Nova Albion. The man who had masterminded Drake's mission was John Dee. While Dee's previous work had been theoretical, in the 1570s he involved himself in Elizabeth's geopolitical planning, laying the ideological framework for building a new world empire. This empire, which would spread the new ideals of the Reformation and lead to the birth of America, would soon grow to compete with the Spanish Catholic efforts at colonization. It was to be a cold war for a new world. End quote. As Lavenda and Louvre both note, Dee literally coined the phrase British Empire. All right, returning to this quote from Jason Louvre's. John D. D, with his back pocket full of superior knowledge of geography, navigation, and optics, 
would soon suggest Elizabeth contest this and expand into the New World, not just to rival Catholic domination, but for economic growth. Dee's knowledge of optics, as well as the geographic and cartographic information he had absorbed under Mercator and his other mentors at a time when accurate cartographic information was largely confined to the continent, made him invaluable in not only conceptualizing, but actualizing his plan. Yet for Dee himself, exploration of the New World had little to do with mercantile or even political goals. His fascination with imperialism pertained more to his occult calculations. It was clear to Dee, if no one else, that America had been colonized by King Arthur, even that still existing Arthurian colonies might be found in the Northwest Passage. If this was the case, England had just as much spiritual claim to America as Rome did. So Louvre describes this initial expedition to the New World that Dee was a part of and helped to conceive of, which involved Martin Frobisher and uh, Michael Locke. They were dependent on Dee's knowledge of geometry, cosmography, and navigational instruments. Quote, Two ships were next commissioned, the Gabriel and Mikael, named after the archangels that Dee would later record extensive traffic with during the angelic conversations. End quote. So, following this initial expedition that Dee mounted, the captain and crew returned from present day Newfoundland. Canada, with an Inuit prisoner in tow, and a black rock that got a bunch of alchemists excited, as well as the capitalist backers of the adventurous venture. As trace amounts of gold were found within this ore, this apparently validated Dee's belief that the year 1572 would be the year when the Philosopher's Stone would be discovered, which Dee believed had been foretold by a supernova. Queen Elizabeth and the assorted backers felt there were real returns to be made, so they roused another expedition of 140 men to return to Meta Incognita on three ships, did I mention that that's what they called this supposedly quote-unquote newly discovered land? The expeditioners were to establish quote-unquote friendly relations with the inhabitants of Meta and mine as much gold and silver from the black ore as possible. In the end, the returns didn't live up to the hype 
as no more than a pinhead of silver was extracted from over 140 tons of rock. Another quote from Louvre. To D, however, the political value of the English voyages to Newfoundland and Baffin Island was immense, and not only because they were gathering data in the search for the Northwest Passage. In November 1577, Dee presented a new imperial plan to Elizabeth, suggesting that England wrest control of the New World from Spain. General and Rare Memorials, a set of documents laying out plans and technical guidelines for a new era of English colonization. Dee thought the memorials were divinely inspired, also by the angel Mikael, in the case of the Monos. For Dee, the memorials were a revelation from the angels, divine guidance on the creating of a British empire through a royal navy that would hold the world in its sway. In the text, D argued that Britain had the greatest need of any country for a continually operational navy, and that it also had the world's greatest supply of timber, shipbuilders, willing volunteers for shipyard labor, and staffing ships, and even suitable harbors. Establishing such a navy would make Britain nigh on invincible. It did. And expansion of the British Navy and colonization of the New World not only had historical precedent, but would surely raise vast riches for the crown. It did. Such a plan would establish Elizabeth as the world ruler before the end times arrived. The money raised for the naval effort, Dee later added, could also be used to help build a new alchemical institute to produce the Philosopher's Stone, the final perfection of which would re-establish the empire in full. In his partially lost 1577 manuscript, Famous and Rich Discoveries, D speaks of how he would ascend above the heavens and look down upon the earth and divine the Northwest Passage. The cover of the memorials depicts Elizabeth helming a ship representing British imperialism, with the angel Mikael flying before her with sword and shield in hand, and the tetragrammaton above her, the ship being drawn forth by Lady Occasion toward freshly conquered territories. End quote. You may already know the name John D. You may know of his reputation as a conjurer and as the modern recipient of Enochian magic language of the angels. You may also know that John Dee was a spy, 
and was, in fact, inspiration for future spy Arthur Fleming's character, James Bond, who literally ripped off John Dee's numerical pseudonym, 007. You might have known that Dee was retained by the court of Elizabeth for astrological and counter-magic purposes. That Dee cursed the Spanish Armada in the lead-up to what was maybe England's most unlikely naval triumph. I doubt you know that Dee himself once fomented an anti-Catholic witch crusade in response to a curse he believed had been placed on the Queen. If you do, you're a real D-head. No doubt about it. Hopefully some of this information regarding D's effect on the imperial project of the nascent British Empire is new for you. If it isn't, then you probably know more about John D than I do. But either way, I promise that there will be some new info for you to sink your teeth into later in this episode, as we trace a transatlantic, Rosicrucian, and alchemical brotherhood that not only rooted the occult in New England at the earliest moment of the Puritan colonial project, but also was decisive in the emergence of the New England slavery economy. So we've now connected D to the Elizabethan circumnavigation of the world mission that was assigned to Sir Francis Drake. D believed that North America was so vast that the Northwest Passage would be nigh on impossible to navigate, and so he advocated for Drake to sail south around the Cape instead, and to locate the passage on the other side. As Louvre notes, Drake would make it all the way to San Francisco Bay, and possibly as far north as Alaska, prior to turning west and completing the circumnavigation. A silly interlude from my Clonigosh's early childhood. When I was a little kid, I loved pirates and shit. And I had recently learned about Sir Francis Drake. One day at breakfast, my parents were testing my privateer knowledge and asked me who Sir Francis Drake was. I responded, wasn't he the pirate who circumcised the world? <laughs> Sir Francis Drake, privateer of private parts and cutlisser of peens the world around. I'm not sure if I was stupid or precocious. All right, back to your regular programming. In September of 1580, Queen Elizabeth rolled up on the Dee estate in Mortlake, unannounced. Dee had been absent from court for a time, and Her Majesty was missing her favorite court magician. 
Two weeks later, Dee returned to court to hand-deliver his newest work, Britannici Imperi Limites, Limits of the English Empire. Addressed solely to Elizabeth and her privy council, the limits sought to establish a spiritual mandate not only for giving Elizabeth control of both the Low Countries and America, but for establishing her as the sovereign of a new global order. Dee believed this newest treatise had been inspired by the Holy Trinity itself. Quote, Dee argued that during his reign, King Arthur had held dominion not only of America, but of thirty countries. If this was indeed the case, then England had at least as much of a spiritual claim to world power as Rome, and all Elizabeth had to do was assume his mantle and become the Arthurian world empress. Even Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, whose court circle Dee had connections with during his time at Louvain, had long seen Arthur as the model on which the future world ruler would be based. After the Dutch Revolt, it was hoped that Elizabeth would claim Dutch sovereignty, and that she, and not a Habsburg, would become the Arthurian world emperor, uniting the globe under the banner of a reformed Christendom. Mercator himself had written to Dee that King Arthur had sent an expedition of 4,000 men into the seas near the North Pole, and that some of the members of the team had survived, with their descendants appearing at court in Norway in 1364. Also of interest was the Welsh legend of Madoc, a prince who supposedly explored the New World in 1170. Dee not only feverishly sought to discover evidence of Madoc's existence in Spanish records of America, but believed that he was descended from the prince. Claims by Dee that Arthur had ruled over Hollandia only added to the case for Elizabeth becoming the world emperor of Christendom. Maps drawn up by Dee on the foundation of the Arthurian claim to the New World sprawled from Florida to Novaya Zem Zemlaya. This may be Russian, and I'm just butchering it. Novaya Zemlaya in the Arctic Ocean. Save the Arthurian angle, this was not a new idea. The hope for a last world emperor had long been part of Catholic eschatology. With the long-expected monarch re-establishing a new Roman Empire with dominion over the entire globe, as a bulwark against the Antichrist. This final emperor 
had been predicted in the widely known 7th century Syriac text Apocalypse by Pseudo-Methodius, a product of Eastern Christianity, which prophesied that Christendom would be savaged by Muslim invaders as God's retribution for widespread sexual licentiousness, including homosexuality and even transgenderism. This onslaught would be overcome by the final Roman emperor, who would push back the forces of the Antichrist to come, who would be born in the village of Chorazin. Okay, we're almost done with this massive block of text from Louvre. One last paragraph. An earlier individual who had connected this apocalyptic prophecy with European exploration of the New World was none other than Christopher Columbus. After the completion of his voyages, Columbus composed a religious text entitled El Libro de las Profecias, The Book of Prophecies, which suggested, following Joachim of Fiore, that four critical events were necessary to prompt the Second Coming. These were the Christianization of the planet, the discovery of the physical Garden of Eden, a final crusade to recover Jerusalem from Islam, and ultimately the election of a last world emperor to ensure the crushing of Islam, the retaking of the Holy Land, and the return of Christ to the world. End quote. So, as Lavenda and Louvre have alluded, both Dee and Columbus were a part of a larger Rosicrucian tradition, Columbus as a Neo-Templar and Dee as the teacher of Francis Bacon and as a member of the School of Night, and according to some, potentially the author of some of the Rosicrucian manifestos. And both worked with their respective royal backers to colonize foreign lands in the service of a vision of a global Christendom, one Protestant and the other Catholic. Following the previous passage, Louvre next describes some of the numerological, angelological, and astrological thinking behind Dee's belief in Elizabeth's destiny of world domination and his vision of an Arthurian-inspired British Empire. The major distinction between the two was, of course, their respective faiths. Columbus dreamt of Ferdinand and Isabella becoming Catholic world emperors, whereas Dee was vying for Elizabeth to lead a new Protestant global order. Louvre relates how Dee was inspired by Trithemius, specifically his De Septum Secundes, which argued that the course of history is ruled over by seven angels, corresponding to the seven planets, each of which holds regency over a period of 354 years and four months. 
beginning with Genesis and ending with Revelation. According to Louvre, D recalculated Trithemius's math, assigning the Elizabethan period to the angel Anael slash Venus, his rationale being the number of female rulers in Europe at the time, and the recent 1572 supernova. In D's mind, Trithemius's calculations and England's legendary Arthurian history gave Elizabeth a legal and astrological mandate to conquer and convert the entire world to Christianity, paving the way for the Christian apocalypse of revelations and the second coming of Christ. Interestingly, Dee's vision wasn't exclusively Protestant, as he advocated for some indigenous Americans to be converted to Protestantism and others to Catholicism. All that means is that his racist colonizing was pragmatic. At the end of the paragraph just described, Louvre shows how Dee's notion of Elizabeth leading the world into the eschaton wasn't exclusive to him. Evidently, James Sandford had predicted the end of the world would come in 1588, and that these were commonly held beliefs in English society at the time. Louvre depicts the irony inherent to Dee's ultimate ouster from the court, and how, following the passing of Queen Elizabeth, his grand visions of British world domination would actually come into fruition. Unfortunately for Dee, he would have no part to play in King James I's court, and Dee would fade into obscurity. In Louvre's words, quote, But Dee, the initiating magus, would enjoy no part of it, not even as a commercial partner. Dee's place in the Fellowship of New Navigations, Atlantical and Septentional, would be taken by the younger Sir Walter Raleigh. History itself would forget Dee's role in establishing the empire, passing over his legacy in favor of that of Richard Hacklett. Francis Drake, and Raleigh, despite the fact that Dee was far more central to planning. Dee's contribution was providing the justification and story behind why expansion was important, christening the nascent British Empire and giving his child a life script and ideology. In time, this single idea of a British empire, dreamed up by an eccentric English academic, or given to him by the archangel Mikael, as Dee as believed, would come to dominate the planet. Following World War I, the empire on which the sun never sets 
claimed over 458 million subjects. Somewhere between one-fifth and one-fourth of the world's total population. End quote. Louvre writes that the British Empire covered a full fourth of the world's land mass, as well as most of its oceans. He correctly claims that the British Empire dwarfed the imperial achievements of Alexander, Caesar, or the Khans. A final sentence or two. Quote, if we are to consider the American Empire to be the logical successor of the British one, to which global power was transferred when its progenitor began to collapse due to financial overextension, then we must also hold John D. as the great-grandparent of the modern world. This Anglo-American world order is ruled not by a single world sovereign, but by bureaucratic centralization of power, united not under the banner of Protestantism, but under that of its crowned and conquering child, the single world religion of global capitalism. Yet, with the same exact Protestant eschatology operating in the background. End quote. I don't dig Jason Louv's approach to everything, but that last bit about the lineage of American global capitalism and its origin in Dee's eschatological scheme for world domination is on point. We're now going to endeavor to track how these occult Protestant ideas of Dee's influenced the intellectual lives of the colonial New England elite of the following generation, as well as the through lines from Dee's thought to pansophism and even an alchemical plantation in Connecticut. If the texts we've been grappling with are to be believed, esoteric traditions and secret societies have played a significant role in the history of human affairs, especially in the highest echelons of society and power. If this is the case, it becomes imperative to discern why it is so, and to trace the extent of such societies and traditions' influence. What is incontrovertible fact is that the world has been unbelievably fucked up, at least throughout recent recorded history. For far too many people, and for far too long, the world has been the stage upon which irredeemable suffering and hardship has played out. If the occult philosophies and the secret societies that the wealthy and powerful have flocked to throughout the centuries 
are encouraging the immoral consolidation of wealth and power that has led to so many societal ills. It is essential that we prove it. Think about it. Up a check on the outskirts, stacks all of my insults. Torn like a concert with them beans, I ain't talking pentos. Base rentals in the bike lane, stayed down, I was ten toes. On the eight with my bloodline, was nutty throwing big falls. On the east, 24 kid, Cuddy throwing up big falls. All the outs balling on the budget, fucking, I'ma get them bricks up. In the kitchen with the outcomes, cooking up, I'm a mix mug. Wrist cold when I spin it up, niggas tin it up, but I'm fish ball. Niggas tin it up, but I'm fish ball. Keep that coat swimming in a fish ball. It's that 2020 Pyrex vision on the list, though. Niggas say burning up the turnpike got me like witch road. Not a rolly bus bus. I ain't talking flip mode. Said he on the six four. Told him meet me at the sicko. On seven in Littlefield, pint of high tech and a script of pills. Bitches know I got the juice. Niggas know it's Benadryl. Niggas whipping rubber tusk. Mixing it with Benadryl. Get a brick of blunt, cut it. Hit it with the fentanyl. Baby bottles fucked up. I ain't talking infamil. If it ain't silked up. I'm a upstricker deal, before I had a record deal I was really in the field, for a little bit of nothing I can get a nigga spill, before I had a fan base I was selling 10 flakes, breaking in the cash Trying to make sure that my man straight Now everybody breaking bad, shook all of that dead weight Upgrading my stash, shaking that bag like I landscape My little brother SK, gotta fight a fair case Whole lot of gang shit, and that's without the handshake Ran up a check on the outskirts, stacks all of my insides We've already covered John Dee's role in the rise of the British Empire. To show his relationship to Rosicrucianism in more detail, let's read a quote from Stephen Sora's Rosicrucian America. Quote, There is little doubt, then, that the early royal society post-1717 Freemasonry, the Priory of Sion, the Knights Templar and its sister order, the Cistercians, and the real birth of the Rosicrucian tradition were all connected. The Rosicrucian Enlightenment in England would come to include the most influential alchemists of the day, this group of like-minded individuals, known as the Invisible College as we have previously established, included Sir Walter Raleigh, John Dee, Edmund Spencer, Elias Ashmole, Robert Boyle, and Isaac Newton, all of whom were scientists seeking to uncover facets of the spiritual in a changing world. They were joined by Welsh philosopher and alchemist Thomas Vaughan, English physician Robert Flood, German physician Michael Meyer, and Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe, and others. And although these men were all illustrious for one reason or another, the real Invisible College consisted of the network of nameless adepts who joined them. After half a century had passed, the Invisible College would officially mutate in 1660 
into the royal society, which still exists. A commemorative plate presented to the society depicts Francis Bacon as its past master. Members of the Royal Society would include architects like Christopher Wren and inventors like astronomer Sir Paul Neal, whose expertise was in grinding glass for telescopes. Among the group, Lawrence Rook studied longitude, Abraham Hill studied the theory of money, and Elias Ashmole, a mason, studied astrology, secret writing, and substitution codes. Robert Flood was another influential member. He was the son of Queen Elizabeth's treasurer and served in court alongside Francis Bacon. End quote. Now, Stephen is of the Francis Bacon wrote some or most of Shakespeare's work, School of Thought, which I don't even want to delve into, but it's a fragment of his larger argument emphasizing the sway that Bacon and Rosicrucianism had over English society in Elizabethan and Jacobian England. He also argues that Bacon was Queen Elizabeth I's son, which gels with his other claim that John Dee was Bacon's mentor. As we've already documented, Dee and the Queen were certainly close, so it would be natural that Dee would become the young Bacon's teacher. Tracking the influence of ideas and esoteric traditions is already difficult. It becomes further complicated once the history of secret societies is incorporated as well. Stephen Sora, whose Secret Societies of America's Elite we referenced in the previous episode, attempts to triangulate Rosicrucianism's midwifing role in the birth of the American Empire in Rosicrucian America. To do so, he must not only contextualize Rosicrucianism's debut in public European society in the 16th and 17th centuries, but also catalog the societies and traditions that preceded it and out of which it grew. At least that's Sora's argument. He takes a pretty syncretist approach a lot of the time. I'm not necessarily saying that that's a bad thing, but just a reminder to always be vigilant and critical of the content you're hearing. Just because I present a particular viewpoint in this pod doesn't mean that it's automatically trustworthy or beyond reproach especially when it comes to secret societies and esotericism. There are often conflicting views and information, and the best we can do is hold these things up to the light, compare their shine, and contrast the cracks. Alright, that's today's Stay Critical Critters PSA from your 
disinformations are. Kalani Gosh. With that, let's return to Sora's Rosicrucian America. Except I just remembered something. I recently realized that Sora is an anagram of Rosa. We're on to you, Stephen Rosa Sora. Fucking secret Rosicrucian man. Okay, quote, Rosicrucianism is not a religion. It's a tradition maintained by a secret society. Actually, it is maintained by many secret societies, at least 35 separate groups, all of which claim to be the true Rosicrucian society. Some claim to have a direct line back to Pharaonic Egypt. Others claim a link to the Knights Templar. Still others believe the fraternity was founded by a man named Christian Rosencruz, who was said to have lived in the 14th and 15th centuries. One writer, Tim Wallace Murphy, described Christian Rosencruz as an adept of Sir William Sinclair, the man who, in the 15th century, built the famous Roslyn, also known as Roslyn Chapel, in Scotland. Other scholars would have outsiders believe that Rosicrucian is simply a generic term referring to studies and membership in a philosophical secret society. Others, like Canadian author and mystic Manly Palmer Hall, declare that the Rosicrucian society is composed of the intellectually enlightened who believe the secret destiny is a world order ruled by a king of supernatural powers descended from a divine race, end quote. Yeah, that's an unfortunate belief. So, pulling from the opening chapter, Sora attests that the rosy cross and the rose and the cross have been imbued with symbological meaning for at least a thousand years, if not more. He gives the example that Martin Luther used a rose and a cross as his personal emblem. We're already getting whiffs of Rosicrucianism and Protestantism commingling. Sora lists a slew of poets and authors who used rose and cross symbolism, Edmund Spencer being one of them. Francis Yates also draws a line from Spencer's epic poem to Rosicrucianism by way of hermetic cabalism. We've already been chatting about Francis Bacon for a bit, but now it's time to go ham. Sora identifies Francis Bacon's New Atlantis as a formative Rosicrucian text. Quote, the theme of Arcadia was another important motif of the day. It symbolized an idyllic world and the feminine role in it. Like others of his time, writing on utopian themes and idyllic places, Bacon wrote the novel New Atlantis, 
which was not published until after his death. The world it depicted, a utopia of sorts, was not too different from the world that would later be articulated in Manley Hall's vision that described a learned society called Solomon's House that existed on an island called Ben Salem, literally the son of Salem. Salem is a Semitic word meaning peace. The members of Solomon's house were gifted by God with the understanding of the works and secrets of creation. Initiates wore white turbans bearing a red cross. The rules governing this utopia were identical to the rules in the manifestos of the Rosicrucians. Various other Rosicrucian documents began to emerge in 1605. One manuscript was The Restoration of the Decayed Temple of Pallas, which contained a constitution of the order. Within ten years, the more widely known writings that would come to be known as the Rosicrucian Manifestos started to appear on the continent. The Fama Fraternitatis of the Meritorious Order of the Rosy Cross is one of the most important. It was published in 1614, although there is evidence that it had been circulating among esoteric circles for years prior to its publication. This was succeeded by the confession of a Rosicrucian fraternity the next year. And in 1616, the chemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz was published. It had allegedly been written in 1459. This Rosicrucian body of knowledge included information on alchemy, mysticism, and the Kabbalah. End quote. Sora follows this up with the contention that Dee and Bacon were two of the seminal figures of the Rosicrucian movement. Now reading from a paragraph or two further along. Quote, One of these Rosicrucian texts, the Confession, also known as the Confessio, or Confessio, was originally published with illustrated commentary on John Dee's famous Monas Hieroglyphica symbol. This symbol combines the moon, the sun, the elements, and Aries into one odd figure and accompanies text that has defied explanation. This Monas Hieroglyphica symbol could be said to be a signature symbol of Dee's and its inclusion in the manuscript links the book to him. In any event, together Bacon and Dee grafted a tradition of thinking onto an underground stream of thought that had been around since the church came out against anyone who questioned its doctrine. Because it was dangerous, such knowledge was said to be sub rosa, as in, Quote, under the rose, end quote. In Bacon's case, it was under the rosy cross, or red cross. Okay, that's the end of that Sora excerpt. 
So Sora extends an argument that D. and or Bacon actually wrote The Chemical Wedding, one of these formative Rosicrucian texts he's alluding to that was published in 1616, and whose author always disavowed his authorship, claiming that it was an elaborate practical joke that had been played on him. Sora's of the impression that this was the case. He claims that the purported author, Johann Valentin Andreae, would have only been 17 at the time of publication, and therefore unlikely to have knowledge of the Alexandrian, Hermetic, Gnostic, Politian, Bogomil, and Cathar traditions contained within. Francis Yates is of the opposite opinion, and that Andreae did write it. Much of the basis of individual freedom in England was the early establishment of the legal profession. These professions grew up around old London inns. On the green, at Gray's Inn, most students enjoy cloistered quietness. In a nearby courtyard stands the statue of Sir Francis Bacon, the most eminent member of the inn. As an active Rosicrucian, Bacon wished to bring to England a renaissance of science and literature. Whatever the case, Sora then describes a chemical wedding that did take place, and one with sumptuous Rosicrucian aesthetics to boot. Sora talks about how British Princess Elizabeth Stuart of Bohemia and Prince Frederick V of Germany got married in the Palatinate in 1613. When they married, Elizabeth wore a rose, and the ceremony was vastly different from a Christian ceremony. The Archbishop of Canterbury objected to the ceremony, which he described as pagan. The guests, however, were important. They included Sir Francis Bacon, Fulke Greville, Johann Valentin Andreae, and other Rosicrucians. Sora details how Frederick, this Rosicrucian prince, was offered the crown of Bohemia following the death of Rudolf II, but was ultimately forced to abdicate as the Catholic League raised arms against him, kicking off the Thirty Years' War. Sora provides us with this story as another example of how the transatlantic Rosicrucian Brotherhood were influencing world affairs. According to Sora, the court of the short-lived Winter King was a haven for Rosicrucians such as Michael Meyer and Robert Flood. Sora also claims that Frederick himself wanted to bring about the World Reformation as envisioned in Francis Bacon's New Atlantis and John Dee's conception of a Protestant eschatological world order. Sora gives us the account of how, in 1623, mysterious placards began to appear around Paris, announcing the arrival of the invisible 
Brethren of the Rosy Cross, and concurrent claims that the Brethren were actually able to turn invisible. At least, claimed by one Parisian lawyer. In the next section, Sora attempts to tackle the most essential questions. What is Rosicrucianism? What do the Brethren believe? In my opinion, he doesn't actually present us with enough Rosicrucian philosophy in this section. Continuing to consider the contradicting origin stories instead. Thomas de Quincey, our favorite opium-eating peripatetic and psychogeographer, was of the opinion that Freemasonry is just a modified Rosicrucianism. As Sora notes, Sora claims that Bacon was largely the reason for this and was the link between the two. Stephen goes on to tell how some traditions believe that Rosicrucianism dates back to the pharaoh Akhenaten in Egypt, others to the Gnostics of the early church, and yet others to the Knights Templar. He claims that one fairly universal belief is the important roles Dee and Bacon played in the formulation of the esoteric tradition that exists today. Sora unwinds a spool of threads tied to modern Rosicrucianism. He includes a claim that links it to the Priory of Sion and the accompanying theory that Rosicrucianism was handed down through the ages from the Egyptians via the Greeks, but then also admits that the book in which these documents were included has been partially discredited. He mentions the Sages of Light, aka Sons of Light, and their Red Cross emblem, which could link Rosicrucianism to Zoroastrianism and the god Ahura Mazda, and he also volunteers the possibility that the Corpus Hermeticum translation project, commissioned by the Medici family in Venice in 1463, carried out by Marsilio Ficino, is another link. Sora's rationale being that it advocates for magical practice and the adherence to Christian doctrine. And then, Stephen finally gives the foundational story of Christian Rosencruz and his pilgrimage to the East to study under Zoroastrian and Sufi masters, purportedly in 1393. Quote, Rosicrucians believe the metaphorical way of describing their tradition is to say that Rosicrucianism is the ignition that lights the spark. It brings about a sense of self-awareness and puts an emphasis on the initiation of the individual. Without self-awareness and self-knowledge, man is considered to be unconscious. End quote. Sora's analysis is that the ultimate goal of the Rosicrucian is alchemy, but not the transmutation of lead into gold. Instead, it is spiritual initiation. Once the quote-unquote rose light 
travels up the spinal cord and reaches the brain, the third eye opens and spiritual sight and awareness are achieved. Sounds similar to the process of awakening Kundalini, doesn't it? So, to finish with Sora, he argues that Rosicrucianism is a tradition that upholds individualism, free thinking, and the separation of spiritual values from religious practice. He contextualizes the advent of Rosicrucianism within a larger macrological and spiritual transition from group consciousness and the supremacy of community to the growing awareness of the individual self. In Francis Yates' The Occult Philosophy in the Elizabethan Age and The Rosicrucian Enlightenment, Yates appears to concur with much of Sora's analysis of Rosicrucianism, its origins and influence. In the chapter Christian Kabbalah and Rosicrucianism in Occult Philosophy, Yates links Dee's Rosicrucian eschatological scheme of a united Protestant world order, opposed to the Habsburg Catholic power axis, to that of Francesco Giorgi and Robert Flood. She states that Giorgi's De Harmonia Mundi acts as a guide to Dee's Monas Hieroglyphica. She also hypothesizes that Christian Rosencruz originated in the Red Cross Knight of Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen. I don't know about the merits of that particular argument, but the accompanying one, that the Fairy Queen was a formative piece of Rosicrucian epic poetry, seems sound. She also dubs The Tempest a Rosicrucian manifesto. In the opening salvos of The Rosicrucian Enlightenment, Yeats, similarly to Sora, presents the marriage of Frederick V and Princess Elizabeth of England as of monumental importance to the history of Rosicrucianism, as well as Frederick's decision to accept the crown of Bohemia, which he saw as a religious duty he owed to the reforming movement. His decision positioned him against the Catholic Habsburgs and led to the Thirty Years' War. The defeat of Frederick's forces at the Battle of White Mountain would lead to his and Princess Elizabeth's harried flight from Prague and, most tragically, mass purges of Bohemian Protestants and the total suppression of the Bohemian Church. Yeats argues that Frederick and Elizabeth, in their short reign, represented the Rosicrucian movement that was coalescing, and also that, although the Palatinate was a Calvinist state, it attracted many liberal figures of varying stripes. As Calvinism stood against the reactionary impulse of the Inquisition, of course, as we'll see, Calvinism itself could be perverted to the point where inquisitions were held within its framework. 
as happened in Salem. To sum it up, Yeats views the marriage of Frederick and Elizabeth and their brief reign in Prague as a kind of, quote, false Rosicrucian dawn, end quote, which for a brief spell looked as if it hearkened the beginnings of the Enlightenment. In actuality, the Renaissance would spill into the bloody Thirty Years' War before the Enlightenment could begin in earnest. So, Yeats agrees with A.E. Waite that it's likely the Rosicrucian movement originated, at least partially, in some kind of alliance of Protestant sympathizers formed to combat the Catholic League. She also speculates that Dee may have laid the seeds of the movement all the way back in the 1580s, when he and Edward Kelly were on their Euro trip. Yeats links Dee to the Rosicrucian manifestos through his influence on the works of Heinrich Kuhnroth, or Kuhnroth, I'm not sure which pronunciation's correct, who he met while living in Trebona. We get the famous illustration, the first stage of the great work, from a printing of Kunrat's The Amphitheater of Eternal Wisdom, which shows an alchemist kneeling in prayer in his laboratory. Yeats expostulates that Kunrat's emphasis on magia, or magic, Kabbalah, and alchemia, or alchemy, as the means through which the dawning of a new age for humanity will be realized as distinctly Rosicrucian, as well as his use of the hermetic principle of as above, so below, or macrocosmos, microcosmos. She compares the engravings in his work to the Rosicrucian manifesto Fama Fraternitatis, further explicating Dee's influence on Rosicrucianism. Yeats shares how the 1615 manifesto Confessio contains a word-for-word reproduction of Dee's Monas Hieroglyphica, that being the text. Yeats wonders whether the true purpose of Dee's mission to the continent, some thirty-ish years prior to the publication of the Rosicrucian manifestos, was actually to sow the seeds of Rosicrucianism there. Yeats also analyzes the manifestos Fama Fraternitatis and Confessio in the next chapter. To adumbrate the basics, the Rosicrucians believed that the spiritual teachings of the fraternity, attained through natural magic, Kabbalah, and alchemy, would enable mankind to, quote, understand his own nobleness, and why he is called microcosmos, and how far his knowledge extendeth into nature, end quote. The discovery of the tomb of Christian Rosencruz prophesied the beginning of this new general reformation, which would bring about the ascendance of mankind 
onto a new plane of spiritual understanding. Will you come with me for a few minutes into the mental, spiritual world and dwell in the cathedral of the soul? You do not find it difficult to put yourself into the thought world to think. It is just as easy to go into the cosmic world to dwell there in spirit for a few minutes. It is like lifting the gaze of your eyes upward from the things around you to the blue heavens above. The Rosicrucians weren't afraid to sling a stone or two as well, as evinced by the anti-papist denouncement of the Pope as the Antichrist in the Confessio. This is another objective of the Rosicrucians, as laid out in Confessio. They wish to see the learned of the world unite to overthrow the Pope. Another corroboration of Yeats and Sora's contention that Dee's thinking undergirds Rosicrucianism would be the fact that his Monas Hieroglyphica symbol appears in the margins of the chemical wedding as well. Yeats is smart to compare the millenarian and eschatological tinge of this Rosicrucian vision to that of Francis Bacon's great instauration. Perhaps, if Sora is to be believed, they were similar programs wearing different masks. Now, near the end of the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, in the chapter Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry specifically, Yeats comes down hard on, quote, secret society enthusiasts, end quote, and half-heartedly argues that Rosicrucianism was not a secret society in the literal sense. A thesis that is subverted by the wealth of evidence that she's just spent a book amassing that indicates towards the long reach of Rosicrucian philosophy and its influence on global events in the 17th century. I mean, I get it. She's putting on airs and shitting on the conspiracy theorist because she's a serious historian, and no serious person would believe that the Christian Rosencruz myth is literal. And I don't blame her for distancing herself from the kind of unserious and uncritical thinking that can be common to secret society discourse. That said, I think she's wide of the mark here. Although a world-ruling cabal of Rosicrucians certainly was not the case, I think there's ample, albeit circumstantial, evidence that powerful Rosicrucians did meet in secret. Yeats gives many of the same examples Sora does, the Invisible College slash Royal Society, Bacon and Dee's influence on Rosicrucian thought, etc. If Dee helped to kickstart the Rosicrucian movement and also kickstarted Britain's imperial efforts, through his millenarian scheme of Protestant world domination, 
Isn't that evidence of a Rosicrucian agenda right there? Similarly, Yates' argument that Rosicrucianism didn't exist as a quote-unquote secret society is contradicted by the fact that the people who wrote or published the manifestos frequently disavowed their involvement or called the texts ludibrium or jests. Wouldn't the most likely motivation for them to do so be fear of reprisal from the Catholic or Protestant witch-crusading powers at the time? Doesn't the very real threat of execution or death incentivize secrecy or invisibility? And finally, Yeats' claim that Rosicrucianism as a secret society doesn't exist is patently false because, as one of the previous Sora excerpts we read showed, there are over 35 different secret societies today that have laid claim to that Rosicrucian heritage. Many of them existed during Dame Francis Yates' lifetime. In one of the upcoming episodes of this series, we'll zero in on one of these Rosicrucian societies specifically, which goes by the acronym AMORC, or A-M-O-R-C. Just because the Rosicrucians in the 16th and 17th century self-mythologized or placed themselves within a larger mythological continuum doesn't automatically invalidate the possibility that people were meeting sub rosa and in secret. As in all things, I tend towards a messier analysis, one that can accommodate a multiplicity of motivations and factors. I don't disagree with Yeats that much of the manifestos are mythic or alchemical allegory, and perhaps some of the initial Rosicrucian corpus were in fact hoaxes or jokes. But that doesn't mean that Rosicrucian societies didn't exist. Yeats herself gives two perfect examples of Rosicrucian-influenced societies in that very same chapter the Royal Society and Freemasonry. She also assembles compelling evidence that both Elias Ashmole and Robert Moray, founding members of the Royal Society, had already been initiated into speculative Freemasonry in the 1640s, nearly two decades prior to the founding of the Royal Society in 1660 and nearly a century before the public announcement and unveiling of speculative Freemasonry. If Freemasonry, as Thomas de Quincey argues, is in essence the manifestation of this earlier Rosicrucian secret societal vision, then Yeats' own evidence outlines this very nexus. In the same chapter, Yeats offers the following examples of Rosicrucian and Freemasonic shared lineage. A 1638 poem published in Edinburgh in which the poet self-identifies as a brethren of the Rosy Cross 
and claims to possess the Mason Word, a Masonic pamphlet from 1676 that declares that the, quote, modern green-ribboned cabal, ancient brotherhood of the Rosy Cross, the Hermetic Adepti, and the company of accepted Masons are set to dine together on November 31st of that year. And a letter from 1750 that asserts that, quote, English Freemasons have copied some ceremonies from Rosicrucians and say they are derived from them and are the same with them, end quote. She also refers to the Rose Cross grade that was incorporated into Freemasonry in the mid-18th century in France. Yeats concludes the Rosicrucian Enlightenment with this attempt to distinguish Rosicrucian philosophy from the accompanying secret society connotation. At the same time, she outs herself for the secret society truther she actually is, as she presents her hypothesis that D, during his mission to the continent, sowed the seeds of Rosicrucianism, and that he was in fact a proto-Freemason. My sense is that Yeats is hedging her bets and attempting to thread the needle between serious scholarly analysis while still acknowledging the possibility that Rosicrucian societies did exist. Her obsession with the occult was already weird enough, so I'd guess she was mindful to avoid being branded a full-on conspiracy theorist. We've now taken an honest hard day's stab at sizing up the Rosicrucian movement, the major players, its possible points of origin, and some of its fundamental tenets. We've tabled Sora and Yeats' conception that Rosicrucianism is one stream flowing out of the historical spring from which other fraternal secret societies such as Freemasonry, the Templars, the School of Night, and others have streamed forth. We've also highlighted the way in which Rosicrucianism and accompanying philosophies informed and guided Dee's vision of an Elizabethan Protestant world order realized through the colonization of America.
let's quickly turn our attention to some examples of biblical magic that might shed light on why so many of New England's Puritan ministers and government officials held seemingly contradictory positions on the occult, publicly decrying it on the one hand and practicing it in secret on the other. In the beginning of D. Michael Quinn's Early Mormonism and the Magic World View, Quinn presents various pieces of Old Testament and Toraic evidence of magical practice. The use of angelological and demonological names of power, Jacob using magic staves of hazel, the patriarch Joseph owning a silver cup which he would use for divination, the casting of lots, Moses using a brass serpent, a form of sympathetic magic, to cure Israelis who had been bitten by snakes, etc. Quinn moves on to the New Testament, and various contemporaneous and subsequent depictions of Jesus's miracle workings as sorcery, from the classical through to the Middle Ages. Throughout the many examples that Quinn collects, it becomes apparent that the main distinction between Christian thaumaturgy and pagan forms of magical practice is the Christian belief that Christian magical rituals have been sanctioned by God. As Quinn points out, on a cosmetic and even theoretical level, it's almost impossible to differentiate between Christian miracles and other folk magic practices. Quinn surmises the multifaceted and tenuous relationship between religion and magic in the Middle Ages. Listing examples of Catholic magical practice that were utilized by the Church in official capacities, as well as numerous practitioners who further blurred the lines. Albertus Magnus, Ficino, Reuchlin, etc. Quinn describes how, with the dawn of the Reformation and progressing into the Age of Reason, the uneasy balance between the occult and the Church was disturbed. Quote, of this period, historian John L. Brooke has noted that four distinctly different spiritual authorities were competing for popular allegiance in this struggle. Church reformers, utopian prophets, cunning folk, and Christian hermetic magi. In addition, rationalists encouraged devotion to reason above any religious authority or popular belief. Colonial America was heir to two centuries of this double-edged effort to separate religion from magic. Historian Keith Thomas explained, quote, For those Protestants who believed that the age of Christian miracles was over, all supernatural effects necessarily sprang from either fraudulent illusion or the workings of the devil. The Protestants now attacked not only folk magic, 
but also large parts of the old ecclesiastical magic as well. As a result, some of the most prominent anti-witchcraft writers condemned as diabolical anything that replicated biblical miracles. End quote. Quinn rattles off a litany of texts that influenced the early anti-witch treatise, a discovery of witchcraft by Reginald Scott, among others. Quinn notes how, at least publicly, many mainline Protestant clergy would denounce visions of God or angels as the work of the devil. Quinn is quick to hint at the hypocrisy of this, as well as to complicate the perceived Protestant position on magic, as he notes the prevalence of the occult in colonial America, especially among rural areas, which was 90% of the colonial populations, and then describes how Puritan clergy weren't indiscriminate in their anti-magic crusading. He gives a great example. Remember this one. Noting that Cotton Mather himself would cast a quote-unquote spiritual horoscope for a deceased divine, by which he means either a fellow clergyman or devout Puritan, I believe. Maybe someone can confirm that for us. As you and I will discover, this isn't the solitary example of Cotton Mather, a public defender of the Salem witchcraft trials, and a frequent sermonizer on the dangers of witchcraft and the devil in colonial Massachusetts, not practicing what he preached when it came to the occult. The next section in chapter 1 of D. Michael Quinn's Early Mormonism holds some especially illuminating facts for this episode's investigations. It is titled, The Academic Occult. Quote, Across the Atlantic, John Winthrop Jr. was a practicing alchemist as governor of Connecticut from 1659 to 1676. His library contained 275 books on alchemy and the occult. Winthrop also corresponded with fellow American physician Robert Child about Rosicrucianism's occult philosophy and ye freighters R.C., brothers of the Rosy Cross. As part of the occult's influence on the educational elite, Harvard University taught its students to use astrology in medicine, and the school held debates on astrology for BA and MA graduations until 1717. During the early 1700s, mundane astrology basically planetary influence on world events, was in the physics curriculum at Yale University, where a master's thesis affirmed alchemy in 1718. One Harvard master's thesis of 1762 upheld mundane astrology, 
and another endorsed alchemy in 1771. Yale's president from 1778 to 1795, Ezra Stiles, also privately recorded his explorations into alchemy and the Kabbalah. One of his alchemy associates was a Harvard graduate, probate judge, and president of the Massachusetts Council. In the 1700s, Virginia's aristocratic elite also read widely in occult works, particularly how-to books on astrology and alchemical medicine. An ordained minister had the largest such library, quote, but it was Reverend Tickle's collection of Rosicrucian books that demonstrated how closely a Virginian could follow the most obscure of Europe's occult Christian movements, end quote. Many of New England's practicing alchemists were Yale and Harvard graduates who continued their experiments into the 1820s. These alchemists served as Chief Justice of Massachusetts, President of the Massachusetts Medical Society, President of Yale College, and President of the Connecticut Medical Society. I actually think that that quote is in an excerpt that I read earlier from Lavenda. So, sorry for the redux, but... Moving on. So that's the end of that D. Michael Quinn quote. So we've got John Winthrop Jr., Robert Child, and Reverend Teekle, three Rosicrucian Americans, and just in those few lines. Following the previous passage, we find yet another mention of Francis Bacon, and Quinn points out, his interest in astrology, the occult, and Rosicrucianism. Quinn pulls Johannes Kepler into the mix, and then moves on to maybe the best-known English political theorist of the day, John Locke. Quinn reveals that Locke belonged to a secret esoteric triumvirate with Robert Boyle and Isaac Newton, and that the three of them would exchange occult and alchemical ideas in their correspondence under a pledge of silence. And like Sora, Quinn references the Invisible College, which, as we've covered, basically gave birth to the Royal Society, and counted Sir Walter Raleigh, John Dee, Newton, Boyle, Edmund Spencer, and Elias Ashmole among its members. Now, I would like to introduce another member of the Invisible College myself. Friends, meet George Starkey, a Bermuda-born, Harvard-educated, colonial American alchemist that emigrated to London in the hopes of accessing state-of-the-art laboratory equipment in 1650. George is a particularly compelling link in our investigation because Starkey provides us with further evidence of the prevalence of a hypocritical interest in the occult and esoterica among the intelligentsia 
and elite of colonial New England. Not only was George Starkey a Harvardian himself, but he practiced medicine in Boston for a few years following his graduation. Around that time, he married Susanna Stoughton, the daughter of Colonel Israel Stoughton, a commander of colonial forces during the Pequot War. This is where things get really interesting, as Colonel Israel Stoughton wasn't just your run-of-the-mill military man. Remember how in episode 1, I mentioned Anne Hutchinson, the woman who was holding prayer meetings in her home, which was located where the old corner bookstore sits today. Although Anne Hutchinson is often remembered as being at the center of the antinomian controversy, she wasn't the only person involved. One was the Reverend John Cotton, who was her mentor and influenced her heterodox beliefs regarding the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. John Cotton would escape banishment himself because of his conciliatory stance towards his fellow colonial clergymen, who were critical of his heterodox beliefs, which had inspired Hutchinson. And of course, his gender and status within colonial society likely contributed to him escaping exile. Now, you haven't already forgotten about old man Israel Stoughton, have you? I know it may seem like we've flown off course, but we're getting back to him. Like I said, Stoughton wasn't your run-of-the-mill military guy, as he actually authored a book that contributed to the furor of the antinomian controversy. In it, he attacked the colony's constitution. Evidently, some aspects of the text offended a few members of the general court, as he was barred from holding any colonial office for three years. This punishment would ultimately prove moot, as war broke out between the colony and the Pequot pretty much immediately thereafter, and off the colonel went to command colonial forces in a number of battles. So are you picking up what I'm putting down here? Let me rehash it. Israel Stoughton was not only involved with the heterodox sect that broke from the puritanical mold of the times, but he also married his daughter off to an alchemist named George Starkey. Now, to further reinforce the ties between the colonial elite and the occult, the very clergyman that inspired the antinomian controversy through his iconoclastic sermonizing was none other than John Cotton, as we've already stated. But if you didn't know, John Cotton was grandfather of horoscope-writing Cotton Mather and friend of Israel Stoughton. But wait, there's more. Israel Stoughton himself was the father of William Stoughton, chief magistrate of the court of Oyer and Terminer during the Salem witchcraft trials. It's all just interlocking power elite families with occult tendencies, y'all. 
That's pretty much the para-power mapping promise right there. We're not quite finished with old Israel, though. As it turns out, he was a pretty fucked up dude. Israel exemplifies another one of our themes. Beyond our evidence of colonial intelligentsia and authorities' hypocritical involvement in occult societies and traditions like Rosicrucianism and alchemy, Stoughton was not only known for employing incredibly brutal tactics against his indigenous neighbors during the Pequot War, but also for the enslavement of numerous Pequot captives whom he transported to Massachusetts. Upon their arrival, Israel requested that he be given the, quote, fairest and largest, end quote, of the Pequot women slaves as his personal servant. Needless to say, you're a disgusting POS, Israel Stoughton, and we all know what you were after. Israel may have been one of the very first slave owners in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, as he also owned multiple African slaves, one of which was Dorcas Y. Blackmore. We also know that Israel Stoughton was on a first-name basis with the Endicotts, as Israel would act as a commissioner with John Endicott on behalf of the Massachusetts colony during a border dispute with the Plymouth colony in 1639. The Endicotts are another Massachusetts-based family with slave-trading ties. John Endicott and John Saffin would begin a slave-trading venture and sell slaves captured in Madagascar in Virginia. As you can see, evidence is already beginning to mount. We're only a little ways into our investigation, and we've already connected multiple colonial dynasties to occult interests, Rosicrucianism, and the emergence of the slavery trade in Massachusetts and colonial New England. Let's return to Israel Stoughton's son-in-law, George Starkey, for a moment. George, following his matriculation at Harvard, would open his medical practice in Boston, enjoying considerable success through his utilization of iatrochemistry and the practical applications of metallurgy. He decided to move his family to England in 1650, following in Israel's footsteps, who had already relocated back to the homeland by that time. Upon his arrival, he would gain entrance into the Hartlib Circle, and, by all appearances, the Invisible College and Rosicrucianism. He's known to have tutored Robert Boyle in alchemy. George's practical applications of metallurgy would fail to save his own life. Starkey would die in the Great Plague of London in 1665. Grim. His alchemical fame would continue to grow, though. Gaining celebrated fans like John Locke, 
Isaac Newton, and Leibniz, who, as D. Michael Quinn points out, joined a secret Rosicrucian society in Nuremberg in 1667, might as well shoehorn the incredible account of Alexander Seton, invisible collegian and alchemist par excellence, into the episode at this point, Seton links to Starkey through their connections to the Invisible College and alchemical pursuits, and therefore just one or two more degrees of separation from Israel Stoughton and Cotton Mather. The little I know about Alexander Seton has been gleaned from Lewis Putnam Turco's Satan's Scourge, a narrative of the age of witchcraft in England and New England, as well as Alexander Seton, the Scottish alchemist that set continental Europe ablaze circa 1600 AD, a presentation by someone named Philip Coppins, delivered at the Saunier Society Conference, New Battle Abbey, in November 2002. Alexander Seton was probably of a Scottish noble line, the Settons, who similarly to the Sinclairs and their Roslyn Chapel, built a church on their estate. I don't believe I've mentioned this yet. The Roslyn Chapel is referenced quite a bit throughout Stephen Sora's Rosicrucian America. And Sora claims the chapel is a pilgrimage destination for Freemasons, Rosicrucians, and Hermeticists. Seems likely, as these connections are not only made explicit through the literal stone that it was carved out of, but also are well known enough to have landed it in mainstream fare like Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Sora describes how the Roslyn Chapel's architecture combines Celtic and Nordic paganism with Christianity through the use of symbols such as fallen angels, serpents, and the Celtic green man, and the more recognizably Christian ones. Quoting from Sora, The Roslyn Chapel is also replete with symbols of Freemasonry, including the Apprentice's Pillar, the Journeyman's Pillar, the Master Mason's Pillar, and other Masonic devices. It was built in the 15th century, long before Freemasonry was actually established in any official sense. For this reason, it might be said that the chapel hinted at or revealed secrets that might otherwise have remained secret until much later. The Scottish form of Freemasonry grew out of the Templar organizations. After 1307, Templars were outlawed, and travel for them could be dangerous. As we have previously established, the lodge system of the earliest Masons offered protection, lodging, food, and often employment to Brother Masons." End quote. Continuing with the architectural theme, Sora next switches from describing the Templar-slash-Masonic, Christian, and pagan context of some of the chapel's adornments 
and the St. Clair or Sinclair family's Templar membership to the presence of maize and aloe in the masonry. This segues into the remainder of the chapter, where Sora presents an argument that Henry Sinclair went on an expedition to North America, and specifically Massachusetts, in 1398, with a Venetian prince of the surname Zeno. They would leave behind a carving of a knight with Sinclair with Sinclair heraldry near Westford, Massachusetts, a suit of armor in Fall River, and a tower in Newport. I apologize for the curlicue nature of these investigations, old buddy old pal. I'm sorry if this stuff is tough to track. It sure as shit can be for me. Let me reduce what we've just learned to its most essential parts, and then pick back up where we left off. We just introduced an alchemist named Alexander Seddon, who was a member of this noble Scottish line, and also highly likely a member of the Invisible College. We dutifully connected him to Israel Stoughton, Salem Witchcraft Trial Magistrate William Stoughton, and Cotton Mather, through his fellow Invisible College member George Starkey, who married Israel Stoughton's daughter and graduated from Harvard. And then, to better understand what we're about to get to, which is the Seton's connection to the Templars and alchemy, we went on a brief detour and discussed the Sinclairs, who were Templars themselves, influential in early Scottish Freemasonry, and may have also visited New England some 90-ish years prior to Christopher Columbus arriving in the Caribbean. Let's get back to the Settons. As far as the alchemist Alexander Seton is concerned, the story goes like this. Sometime in the late 1590s or early 1600s, a Dutch seafarer washes up along the coast of Scotland, following a shipwreck somewhere in the North Sea, possibly the Firth of Forth or somewhere further out, depending on the account. The seafarer, named Hawson or Hansen, is rescued by Alexander Seton and nursed back to health. From the seafarer's own account, we learn that Seton owned a home and some land on the coast. Seton helps the wayward Dutchman return to his own country. In 1602, Seton and his assistant, William Hamilton, depart Scotland to travel about the continent, seemingly with no express purpose beyond wowing disbelievers with Seton's Philosopher's Stone. It would be more aptly described as Philosopher's Powder, and performing that fabled feat, the transmutation of metal into gold. The pair first arrive in Holland. They meet up with their friend Jacques Hossen in Ankhusen, or Ankhusen, and promptly transmute a base metal into gold. Hossen is flabbergasted and can't keep his mouth shut. 
Jacques lets a local doctor with the surname Vander Linden in on the secret. According to Georges Morhoff, who is supposedly an expert on transmutation, the grandson of this doctor owned an ingot of gold that had been carefully marked detailing the date and time of the transmutation, 13th of March, 1602, at 4 p.m. From here, Seton travels on to Amsterdam, Switzerland, Germany. In Freiburg, he performs another transmutation, this time in the presence of the skeptical Ball professor Wolfgang Dienheim, who was a passionate opponent of alchemy. Dienheim was impressed enough by what he witnessed to record the experience and an adamant testimonial that what he'd seen was in fact the transmutation of lead into gold. A second professor, named Jakob Zwinger, was also present, and he later confirmed Dienheim's account to a third professor. Seton performs a second transmutation in Freiburg before leaving, this time in the goldsmith shop of André Bletz. Something worth noting, with each transmutation, Seton wouldn't touch the metals, instead having his witnesses handle all of the materials and instruments and follow his careful instructions. At this point, Seton's starting to create a stir around Europe. Emperor Rudolf II has now heard of him, and in Strasbourg, a man named Gustenhofer tries to impersonate him so as to collect the accompanying accolades and benefits. According to Louis Putnam Turco, this Gustenhofer was actually a goldsmith that Seton gave a few packets of his philosopher's powder to. Coppin's version differs slightly, describing him as an impersonator. Gustenhofer is invited to Rudolf's court, but once his ruse is revealed for what it is, gets himself thrown into the dungeon, where he would remain for the rest of his days. Grimm. Meanwhile, Seton continues on to Frankfurt, Köln, and Hamburg. In Munich, he falls in love with a young woman. When her father refuses Seton her hand, the two elope. It's at this juncture that things go horribly, horribly wrong for Seton. Running low on funds, he decides to break his own rule and use the Philosopher's Stone to raise money, this time seeking out the Duke of Württemberg, who was desperate for financing and owned an alchemical works in the Neckar Valley. Seton performs the transmutation, receives a stipend to join the colony, and then flees to Crossan. Around this time, his aide Hamilton performs the great work for the new elector of Saxony in Crossan. With Seton in love and preoccupied with his marital bliss, Hamilton decides to return to Scotland content that his master no longer requires his services.
But the elector, Christian II, is intent on gaining the secret of the Philosopher's Stone himself. He begins to court Seton to no avail. He then ups the ante and demands the secret from him. Seton still refuses. Infuriated, the elector imprisons Seton and sets about trying to torture the secret of Seton's powder out of him. Seton is put on the rack, branded, and likely had a whole lot of really fucked up torture shit done to him. Even so, he doesn't budge. Eventually, a Polish chemist named Michael Sendivogius insinuates himself into the elector's court, promising Christian that he will extract the secret from Seton. Sendivogius begins spending a lot of time in the dungeon with Seton, as well as befriending the guards. The guards, knowing Sendivogius's supposed purpose, believe him to be an ally of the elector, and thusly treat him warmly. Unbeknownst to them, Sendivogius has hatched a plot with Seton to free him from the dungeon. One night, Sendivogius throws a riotous party for the guards and gets the lot truly wasted. Talk about a cliched prison escape tactic. You'd think the guards would have seen through the ploy, but I'll go out on a limb and argue that, from time immemorial to today, people who choose to work as prison guards generally aren't the brightest. Once the guards are properly soused or passed out, Sendivogius opens Seton's cell and helps him out to a waiting carriage. Seton is so badly wounded and battered that he can't walk on his own. Poor guy. So Sendivogius takes Seton. They retrieve Seton's wife and the hidden powder and escape to Sendivogius's estate in Krakow. Seton's ailing, but in thanks for his rescue, pays Sendivogius an ounce of his powder, as promised. Sendivogius wants the whole kit and caboodle, though. He wants the secret. Seton refuses, but Sendivogius is crafty and patient. A few weeks pass, Seton dwindles and finally dies. Sendivogius takes his manuscript and the remaining powder and marries Seton's wife, not chill. Although Seton never passed his secret on to Sendivogius, some folks believe that Sendivogius was able to decipher Seton's manuscript and ultimately managed to perform the great work that way. In Coppin's presentation, he details the murkiness around Seton's familial origins. There's a possibility that he wasn't actually a member of the noble Scottish family called Seton, and that his name was derived from the village he hailed from. But it's just as likely that he was, in fact, a member of the Seton nobility, but was simply excised from their official records because of his connection to the occult and alchemy. 
An impetus for this that Coppins gives are the many witchcraft trials that were happening in that area of Scotland at the time, under an anti-witchcraft crusading king. Finally, it's also possible that he was an unclaimed bastard. A quick epilogue to deepen our mapping of the Invisible College slash Rosicrucianism and its connections to the colonial elite of New England. One evening, in December of 1608, Invisible College wizard John D. was wandering about his manor at Mortlake, feeling infirm and dazed. He took a candle to his bedroom and went to sleep one final time. The funeral near the D home was sparsely attended. D was no longer in the crown's graces, of course, as Elizabeth was no longer living. So no royal retinue. D's son Arthur and a few others were present, as were some gawking village folk. But the Hermetic Brotherhood slash Invisible College of London sent representatives. Dr. John Lamb, Dr. Simon Foreman, and Simon Reed were all present. As was a tall Scottish man with a flaming beard who was there with them. Alexander Seton's assistant, William Hamilton. As we've begun to demonstrate, the Invisible College slash Hermetic Brotherhood didn't just connect upper-class practitioners of alchemy from England to continental Europe. It also stretched from Old England to New. In Prospero's America, John Winthrop Jr., alchemy, and the creation of New England culture, 1606, to 1676, Walter H. Woodward describes this network as the following, quote, a pan-European network of alchemical practitioners who believed Christian alchemy could hasten the pansific, that is, divinely sanctioned, knowledge-based, reformation of the human condition. Winthrop's alchemical network reveals the importance of pan-European and transatlantic scientific alliances on New England colonization. Through relationships with Comenius, the circle of reformers such as Gabriel Platt around the London-based German emigre Samuel Hartlib, alchemical friends in London, Hamburg, Amsterdam, New England, and the Caribbean, and in later years, as a member of the Royal Society, Winthrop sought to use alchemy as a means of helping achieve the Pacific Reformation of New England and the world while establishing the Puritan colonies on a sound and sustainable economic footing. For Winthrop, the goals of Christian Reformation of the world and economic development were virtually synonymous. The Pacific goal 
of universal reformation framed an alchemical, moral economy in which entrepreneurism in the service of Christian goals was not just justified, it was expected. End quote. Woodward's Prospero's America is a book-length exploration of John Winthrop Jr.'s alchemical practice and attempts to establish an alchemical plantation in New London in Connecticut in the mid-1600s. John Winthrop Jr. was none other than the son of the first governor of Massachusetts, John Winthrop, and first emigrated to colonial New England around the same time as his father. Winthrop was connected to the Hartlib Circle in London, like his fellow New Englander, George Starkey. Just like Seton and Dee, Winthrop traveled throughout Europe, befriending alchemists in places like Amsterdam and Hamburg along the way, places that Seton and Dee had visited before him. And he was also a member of the Royal Society, the official body that morphed out of the secretive, invisible college. All in all, making John Winthrop the Younger a likely candidate for the Invisible College itself. We're going to return to John Winthrop Jr. in a bit, but first. I promised that we would finish our psychogeographic tour, and we finally got the perfect segue to do so. Now that we've introduced a few of the luminaries of the New England alchemy scene, and wrapped this first discursive attempt at mapping the transatlantic New England-slash-Old England alchemical network, we can turn our attention to King's Chapel and the King's Chapel burying ground. I said we have the perfect segue, and here it is. Governor John Winthrop of City-on-a-Hill fame and alchemist John Winthrop Jr.'s dad, is buried in King's Chapel Burying Ground, as is the Reverend John Cotton, Cotton Mather's grandpa. If you listen to the previous episode, Parker House Horrors, you'll remember that the King's Chapel Burying Ground is directly across from the Omni Parker House. I need you to get those synapses firing and those third eyelashes flapping again. Flick on that old imaginarium, because we're returning to psychogeographic tour mode. Try to imagine. We leave the gilded entryway of the Omni Parker House and cross quiet School Street once again sidling up on the coarse granite of the King's Chapel, low and squat in comparison to the buildings that have cropped up around it, and looking like something straight out of a Washington Irving or Edgar Allan Poe story. We round the corner, walking along its wrought iron fence, 
and peer up at the thick Corinthian pillars that hide its face. Cars whip past behind us on Tremont, their headlights flashing across the chapel's teeth. The King's Chapel was designed by a Rhode Island-based architect named Peter Harrison. And all you noited noities out there better get ready, because check it out. Harrison and the Georgian architecture of the King's Chapel were inspired by none other than Christopher Wren, which is a name you might recognize, especially if you're an Alan Moore fan, as Christopher Wren was the architect that brought Nicholas Hawksmoor, the devil's architect, into his firm, and the man that Hawksmoor collaborated with extensively. Was Harrison a Hawksmoor acolyte as well? It's likely that he was at least familiar with his work, seeing as he was with Wren's. If you haven't read Alan Moore's From Hell, or Ian Sinclair's Lud Heat, which inspired it, the gist is this. Moore and others have argued that Hawksmoor, and Wren by association, at least on the churches they collaborated together on, constructed a hyper-sigil into the London landscape, particularly with the six churches on which Hawksmoor was lead architect, and which were commissioned by Parliament in 1710. Six, yeah. Scary number. Hawksmoor is known for a Georgian, Gothic-esque style that is almost bricolage-like in its combination of pagan, hermetic, Egyptian, and Freemasonic motifs. Without spoiling from hell, Moore posits a possible interpretation of the Jack the Ripper killings, wherein the Ripper uses these various Hawksmoor-built churches and other London landmarks with occult symbolism as the location of his ritual murders, creating a secondary, rhyming hypersigil in the process. Oh, and Hawksmoor was, in fact, a Freemason, if you were wondering. He joined a London lodge in 1730. We obviously can't waste any more time talking about Moore and his Ripper theories, as well as Hawksmoor's important role in them. But it is interesting that Peter Harrison, the architect of King's Chapel, would seemingly be a devotee of the same architectural movement, and that Wren, Hawksmoor's mentor, would be his biggest influence. Not to get too woo-woo, but their influence on Harrison starts to feel a little spooky when we consider King's Chapel's placement in relation to the Parker House and the hotel's sordid and violent history which intersects with the lives of numerous assassinated presidents and movement leaders, as we discussed last episode. What certainly isn't woo-woo 
is that the King's Chapel is emblematic of the connections between the colonial Massachusetts intelligentsia and slavery, as is Peter Harrison. Before we delve into that, the basic chronology of the chapel, its crypt, and graveyard. I've taken some of the following from the King's Chapel Burying Ground historical plaques, which dot the cemetery, as well as the King's Chapel official website and the Salem Witch Museum website. The Burying Ground, originally called the Burying Place, was the only cemetery in Boston for close to 30 years. Copse Hill Burying Ground was established in 1659, followed by the Granary Burying Ground in 1660. The first cemetery was then called the Old Burying Ground until the mid-1750s, when it was renamed King's Chapel Burying Ground after the adjacent church. The cemetery predates the King's Chapel Church and is not affiliated with it or any other church. Royal Governor Andros seized part of the land in 1668 to establish the first Anglican church in the colonies. The first church building was wood, erected in 1688. The present stone building dates to 1754 and was completed in 1789 when George Washington came to speak and, as we've already detailed, was designed by Peter Harrison. Tradition says the cemetery was laid out on land owned by early settler Isaac Johnson and that he was the first person ever interred here. Over 1,000 people are buried in this small area of less than half an acre. Approximately 500 headstones and 50 footstones remain, and approximately 36 of 78 tombs are marked. The placement of the stones does not correspond with the remains underneath. Markers were moved in the early 19th century to create walking paths. The King's Chapel burying ground is rife with connections to the Salem witchcraft trials, particularly through the bodies interred in its cold New England soil. Major General Wade Still Winthrop, the grandson of the first governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, John Winthrop, and the son of alchemist John Winthrop the Younger. Waite Still was commander-in-chief of the provincial forces. He was one of the nine magistrates who sat on the court of Oyer and Terminer during the witchcraft trials of 1692, and he also sat on the superior court, which tried the remaining cases in 1693. He died in 1717. I told you we had the perfect segue. Wait still Winthrop, one of the nine magistrates of the court of Oyer and Terminer, is interred beneath a tabletop tombstone in the King's Chapel burying ground. This is probably when I should disclose 
something relevant to our investigation. You see, my old man-esque obsession with all this shit was triggered by an uncanny moment standing in front of Waitstill Winthrop's grave. I was a recent transplant to Boston, and as one newly arrived in this city is prone to be, I had become infatuated with the Gothic, Lovecraftian undertones of the city, despite myself. I'm really not a fan of H.P. Lovecraft, but what with his New England association, it's an apt descriptor. I also had a burgeoning interest in esotericism at the time, and these interests began to tangle. And as I began to pluck at the knotted history of occultism in Massachusetts in the colonial era, it was like this whole skein of synchronicities and hidden meanings began to unravel before me. One fall afternoon, I took a walk, cutting a path through the North End and downtown Boston that was very similar to the one we've taken with this psychogeographic sketch. I had a handful of books rattling around in the old noggin, specifically The Trials of Thomas Morton, which we'll reference later, as well as passages from Lavenda's Sinister Forces that pertain to the role that Massachusetts has played in the advent of American political witchcraft. And as I walked, I began to discover some of the landmarks and the connections we've been covering for the very first time. My destination was the King's Chapel and the King's Chapel burying ground. As I had left with the intention of seeking the graves of some of the major players in the diabolic tragedy that was the Salem Witchcraft Crisis. When I reached School Street and headed up it, I happened upon the Omni Parker House, and with just a cursory glance at its history online, my mind was blown. Mind you, I'm not sure I'd really discovered its reputation for hauntings yet. That would come later when I bought a copy of that, uh, that, like, paranormal book. What is it? Ghosts of Boston. Yeah, that we referenced in the previous episode. My mind had been blown only by its history. The way it has been a fixture for the power elite throughout its existence its connection to the Abraham Lincoln assassination through John Wilkes Booth, of course, and the inexplicable fact that Ho Chi Minh and Malcolm X both worked there prior to their radicalizations and eventual revolutionary organizing. When I reached the King's Chapel burying ground and began to absorb its haunting history, the uncanny feelings inside of me deepened. By this time, it was twilight. I found myself standing in front of the tomb of Governor John Winthrop and Waitstill Winthrop. I was peering down at all of the coins that had been left on top of it, a ritual that generally denotes 
that a living soldier or veteran has stopped to pay their respects to the deceased. I pulled my phone from my pocket and went to take a picture of the tomb. As soon as I did, the air around me abruptly dimmed, like someone had just turned off the lights. The darkness stood for just a few seconds. During that time span, I had taken two photos. I went to examine them, and there was a blue orb in each. I'm not proud to admit it, but I was, uh, I was a little freaked out by this point. Of course, it could have just been a light anomaly of some kind. And of course, we human beings make meaning out of everything. And yes, maybe I'd primed myself somehow to be extra susceptible to a metaphysical interpretation of an otherwise mundane event. All I can say is that it was one of the weirder things I've experienced in my limited time on this planet, and that even though I remain skeptical of any paranormal explanations of what happened there, I cannot deny that I've felt an urge, maybe even a need, to unravel the threads that I first discovered on that day, and that pulling at those same threads has unveiled secret histories and strange synchronicities beyond anything I could have imagined, and, most importantly, a corkboard of interconnected kinship networks and power structures that have been hugely consequential throughout American history. So now that you know the real me, the me that ascribes meaning to coincidental light anomalies, like some kind of ghost simp, lol, Let's return to a few of the other historical persons whose skeletons are slowly returning to the Boston dust in the burying ground. Thomas Brattle, 1658-1713, was one of the most outspoken critics of the procedures used during the witchcraft trials in 1692. A wealthy Boston merchant, liberal, in his religious thinking, and an opponent of Puritan theocracy, Brattle wrote a letter on October 8, 1692, arguing against the use of spectral evidence to convict those accused of witchcraft. Although the document remained unpublished until after his death, it is thought to have circulated in Boston and helped bring about the end of the trials. Born into a wealthy family in Boston, Brattle graduated from Harvard College in 1676, prior to which he attended Boston Latin School with Cotton Mather. He became a respected mathematician and astronomer, a member of the London Royal Society, and the treasurer of Harvard from 1693 until his death. In 1698, Brattle donated land to build a fourth church in Boston, one that was less rigid than Puritan orthodoxy demanded. All right, another person. One of the wealthiest people 
to be accused of witchcraft in 1692 was widow Margaret Thatcher. No, not that Thatcher. But who knows? Maybe there is some distant relation. Widow Thatcher lived from 1625 to 1694. She was the mother-in-law of Salem magistrate Jonathan Corwin, who was married to her daughter Elizabeth. Although named as a witch, Thatcher was never arrested or jailed. Widow Thatcher was known to have property disputes, and in February of 1692, she accused her servant, Bridget Denmark, of stealing five pounds worth of goods from her home, a crime for which Denmark went to jail. By May, Thatcher was accused of tormenting the afflicted. Denmark confessed to witchcraft and is likely the one who accused her employer. Yet no arrest warrant was ever issued. Was it her wealth, or was it her relationship to Corwin that protected her? We can only speculate. Margaret was born an only child. She married the very wealthy Jacob Sheaf around 1642, and the couple had eight children. When Sheaf died in 1659, his estate was valued at over 8,000 pounds. He's also buried in the King's Chapel burying ground. The following year, both of Margaret's parents died. She received another 500 pounds, plus numerous Boston properties. At 35, she was extremely wealthy. In 1664, Margaret married widower Reverend Thomas Thatcher. She died in 1694 at the age of 68. A few other folks buried in the King's Chapel burying ground that we haven't mentioned yet are William Emerson, the father of Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Elizabeth Payne, whose gravestone may have inspired Nathaniel Hawthorne's character Hester Prynne in The Scarlet Letter. All right, well that concludes episode two of Parapower Mapping and the mammoth first installment of Historical Materia Ultima. If you enjoy our freewheeling investigations and the secret history of Massachusetts, please like, rate, and review the show so that other unsuspecting listeners might discover the transatlantic alchemical and Rosicrucian Brotherhood that initiated the colonization of New England and the transmutation of America into a promised land of obscene wealth for the rich and powerful and untold suffering for the poor, the indentured, and the enslaved. In the next episodes, we will examine King's Chapel and its congregants' involvement in the creation of the slavery economy in Massachusetts, and dive deep into the history of John Winthrop the Younger's alchemical plantation in Connecticut, plus much, much more.
Oh yeah, and I'm also supposed to practice the Patreon bit, even though it isn't live yet. But at least this way y'all know there's gonna be a Patreon, and you can prime yourselves to subscribe when the time comes. Alright, here we go. <clears throat> if you've got a hankering for even more para-power mapping, make sure to subscribe on Patreon so that I can find the time to produce the tons of premium content, synchronous deep dives, and parapolitical power maps planned for future episodes. Until next time, stay critical, critters, and never let rival alchemists near your wife. Adios.